0: Greetings, everybody. You're listening to the Liam Photography Podcast. I'm your host, Liam Douglas, and this is episode 275. So today is Sunday, September 25th, 2022. And in this episode, I'm talking about the news stories and rumor stories for this past week that caught my eye. But first, a little bit of a rant. (laughs) So as you know, from episode 274... Tina and I recently went on a two week trip to New York, Pennsylvania, our hometown areas to visit family and friends. Um, She was getting her first break for a couple of weeks after her first four week at home IV infusion chemotherapy treatment. So we went up to visit family. Now, the other reason why we were going up is earlier this summer. I purchased my late father's last truck that he bought when he and my mom still lived in Georgia with me when they were first retired, which was a 2005 Chevy Colorado. Now, my brother Dennis, my youngest brother, had bought it from my dad when he was still alive and uh, fixed it up after my brother-in-law Terry had hit a deer with it and banged it up quite a bit. And Dennis got it all fixed back up. And he and his wife, Jamie, actually have had quite a few trucks over the years, sometimes as many as four and five trucks at a time. And he didn't really drive dad's old truck a whole lot. Uh, It was two-wheel drive only. And in the northeastern part of Pennsylvania, as you can imagine, the winters can get very nasty. And the way the truck is built, from the factory, it came with 235-50-17 tires. So fairly wide, low-profile tires, and the truck wouldn't get very good traction up there. Even on wet grass, he would do a lot of spinning and stuff. So he had switched it out for 235, 75, 15, or 17s to give it some better traction. But he still didn't drive the truck a whole lot. He mostly lent it out to friends and family members and stuff like that. And So Tina and I had been needing a truck ever since my old turbo diesel that I had when I lived in Georgia died on me a few years ago. And when we first moved up here last year, as you probably know, we tried to buy Tina a truck then. That's what she really wanted. But we couldn't find one for a reasonable price that didn't have astronomical mileage on it. Um, So we ended up buying her a Rogue. So she and I both have Nissan Rogues that are all-wheel drive. She has a 2015. I have a 2017. And they're great vehicles. We absolutely love them. She loves hers, especially the uh, quote-unquote Arctic blue that they call the paint job, which I have no idea where they get Arctic blue from. It looks more like a midnight blue to me but, or to any other uh, paint manufacturer. But that's neither here nor there. So anyways, we were going up to retrieve the truck, which I had bought from my brother, and to visit with family and friends during Tina's break from treatment. Now, we were only supposed to be gone for two weeks, and we started to leave last Sunday. I was doing some work on the truck while I was up there, getting some minor things fixed on it, because I'd uh, been beat up a little bit by some of the people my brother had lent it to, and I'm not picking on him or anything, Um But uh, so I was doing some little bit of fix up here and there on the truck before we brought it back down to North Carolina. And I'd gone on Amazon and I bought an Apple CarPlay stereo for it with a backup camera. And uh, my son, Alex, installed that for me because most of the time we were up north. I was tied up with work pretty much every day. I'm lucky enough to have a full time I.T. job where I can work remote. All I need is my MacBook and an Internet connection. So I had to rely on my son to help with a lot of the work on the truck, and he did a fantastic job, helped me out a lot. So we went to a place called Horsehead's Pick Aparts, which my props to those guys, great folks there. I had wanted to get a class three hitch for the truck, but for some weird reason, even though. Plenty of sellers had them available in stock on Amazon. Even ordering one Amazon Prime was going to take a month to arrive, which just totally blew me away. I'm like, why am I paying $200 a year for Amazon Prime membership? And you can no longer get stuff in two to three days. Most of the time, it's like a month or two weeks or whatever, even when they're when the stuff is in stock. It just doesn't make sense. So anyways, I went to Horsehead's Pick Apart and I found a 2005 Colorado that was wrecked that had a class three hitch on it and I bought it from them. I had them take it off for me. They just go out with a torch and they chop that piece of the frame off and drop the whole thing for you. And then, uh, my son, Alex and I with his friend, Derek up at Derek's uh, shop in, uh, Uh, Gillette, Daggett area of Pennsylvania. Uh, We got the hitch off the old frame, and then we sandblasted it, and we painted it to make it look decent. And then Alex and I got it bolted up underneath the rear end of my dad's old truck. So now it's got a class three hitch, which is totally cool. And it's got Apple CarPlay. It's got a backup camera now. So I've modernized it a little bit, kind of dragging the old girl into the 21st century, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, the stereo that was in it was a fairly nice one. It was a Sony. Uh, and my brother Dennis wanted to keep that stereo since I was going to put a, a CarPlay system in. Anyways, he wanted the the old Sony stereo to put in his uh, 2011 Silverado. So, I uh, got that out and I left it for my, at my mom's house for my brother to get from her so he could put it in his truck. So anyways, we got all this stuff done and Tina and I started out last Sunday, a week from today to head back home. And we got about 80 miles from our daughter Heather's house. And we got just about to William sport and her car shut down on her. Now, let me preface by saying on our drive up, her rogue had the check engine light came on. Um, We were about an hour from our daughter's house when it came on, and I assumed it was for the oil change because I knew it was about due for an oil change. So I took it up uh, the next day to the Nissan dealership. They have an express lube and I got the oil change done. And uh, but the check engine light was still on. And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. So I borrowed my son Alex's code reader because I didn't have mine with me. It was down here at the house in North Carolina. And it was saying it was a problem with the O2 sensor. So I cleared the code. I went online. I looked everywhere. None of the local parts stores in Pennsylvania or New York had the oxygen sensors in stock for that car, which just blows my mind because Nissan used the same oxygen sensors from 2014 all the way up to 2019. Um, And it has two. It has an upstream, which is the one on the on the engine. And then it has a downstream one, which is the one that goes into the exhaust right after the catalytic converter. So anyways, the upstream one was the one that failed. And, uh, you know, I cleared the code thinking, you know, we should be able to get home. okay. usually they take a little while before they completely die. Hopefully when I get home, somebody down there will have one in stock. Well, the car decided to give up the ghost a week later on the drive back or two weeks later, I should say, on our drive back last Sunday. So there we were sitting along US 15 right outside of Williamsport trying to figure out what to do. Now, I have AAA, and I also have towing through GEICO. Now, my AAA is currently only the basic membership. I called them. They only cover three miles of towing, which is really cheesy for the 100 bucks a year they charge for the wife and I to have the membership. So I called GEICO. They covered 20 miles of towing. Now, I was originally going to have the car taken to the local Nissan dealer in Williamsport and dropped off there. And then Tina and I would take the truck back up to Elmira and wait for the car to get fixed. But then I got thinking about it. I was like, "You know what? If I do that, Nissan is going to probably charge me anywhere from 4 to $600 a piece for the oxygen sensors cuz car dealerships mark up everything they sell all the parts they sell ridiculously high. I know cuz I used to work at one when I was younger. Um and then of course labor. So I Figured it was probably going to cost me $1,500, 2000 to get it fixed at a dealership. So when the towing company called me, um, I asked the lady, I said, well, what would it cost for me to pay out of pocket to tow it the extra 50 miles beyond what Geico covers to my daughter's house? And she told me it would be $354, which I wasn't crazy about that. But I said, to heck with it. Um, and I had it towed back to my daughter's house. Tina and I went back there in the pickup and i did go on amazon i hadn't thought of it before so that was my fault and amazon did have sellers that had the oxygen sensors in stock for a reasonable price the upstream was 65 and the downstream was like 43 so it was like 118 dollars with tax for both of them and they could actually get them to us in three days which was shocking (laughs) because <laughs> like I said, Amazon's been really slow on stuff lately, um, but it was still way faster than any of the local parts stores, which all listed on their website, eight to 10 days to get them. Um, so I ordered them. And we got back to Heather's house and we didn't have a choice. We had to stay up there for another week. Um, So we had to postpone Tina starting her next four week round of her chemo treatment. She was supposed to go back in the hospital this past Wednesday, the 21st, and then get out on the Friday, the 23rd and continue her four week regiment at home. But we had to postpone it for a week because we were stuck up there. So. Um, so anyways, uh, we got the car back to Elmira and we got it fixed when the part came. I had a heck of a time with that. That was a whole nother part of this rant is, uh, the day that the new oxygen sensors were coming, I figured I'd go out that morning. Cause I started my shift at noon, um, on my IT job. So I had gotten a special, um, a special socket that's made for oxygen sensors. Luckily, most of them are seven eighths inch. And it's a socket that has a slit up the side to accommodate the wiring harness that comes off the top of the sensor or the end of the sensor. Um, So anyways, I was wrestling with it, trying to get the upstream sensor out. And right about the time that I finally got it to break loose, my bad wrist gave out and I dropped the socket and ratchet combination. And believe it or not, It fell perfectly down the storm drain underneath the car. Oh, I was not happy at all. (laughs) So I ended up going down the road to a local hardware store and I bought a a high strength, 20 pound weight rated magnet um, for like hanging tools on or something. Um, It's a local hardware store for like five, six bucks, something like that. And it had a metal hook on it. And I bought a $2 length of like clothesline rope took them back to my daughter's house and I I tied the rope around the hook, but I was worried about it slipping off while I was trying to fish the tool back out of the storm drain. So we found a pair of pliers and I pinched the hook to make it more of a loop. So the rope wouldn't be able to come off, sent it down into the storm drain. Luckily got the socket back out with, with my wife's help. Thank you, Tina. And we managed to get the socket back out, finished getting the old oxygen sensor out of the car. Um, Now, I did have to remove the front heat shield, which was only four 10 millimeter bolts to get that out of the way to make it easier to get the the upstream sensor back in. So I got it back in once uh, the mail carrier brought the Amazon delivery for that day. So I got the new one in and started the car up and it was still running like garbage installing stalling and everything else. And I was like, what the heck is going on? it's been a long time since I've changed an oxygen sensor myself. So I was trying to figure out what in the world was going on with this thing. New sensor car still runs like garbage. Now, in the interim, I had given my son back his code reader Um, the weekend we thought we were leaving because I didn't think I needed one anymore. And I knew I had one at home. So when I went to get the socket for the O2 sensor, that specialized socket, I said, the heck with I spent 36 bucks, got another code reader at the local auto zone. So the car's still running like garbage with the new sensor in. So I plug in my code reader and there's no codes after it reads the car, but it has all these little icons, many icons on the screen that are blinking. And there's some that are for exhaust and some say for fuel and stuff like that. And it pops up and it says, do you want to erase? And I was like, well, that's kind of weird. It didn't throw a code, but it's asking me if I want to erase. So I hit yes and it did its thing. And then I turned the key and the car startup ran like a champ. And I was like, what the heck? So I did a little web search and I found out that that's what you have to do in order to get the computer to recognize that there's a new oxygen sensor. You have to plug in your code reader, tell it to erase the data so that it forces the computer to search for a new O2 sensor. And then the O2 sensor and the computer start talking to each other. Once I did that, the car ran great and we were happy. So we you know, drove around doing some test driving in the area, took it out on the interstate, stuff like that. I had no problems with it after that. And I ended up waiting a few days until I had time. And, uh, my son, Alex came over, we went to Harbor Freight and I, I bought a, they were having a sale. So I bought a three ton, um, rapid lift, um, floor jack like a nascar style one with the long handle because i always wanted to get one with the super long handle and so i got one of those and i got a set of three ton um, jack stands and we jacked up tina's car in heather's driveway and finally got the downstream one replaced as well now i did buy both oxygen sensors but to be honest Her car only needed the upstream one. The downstream one, even if it goes bad, being it's at the tail end of the exhaust, all that does is it monitors the pollution that's in your exhaust as it expels out of the car. So if that one goes bad, it doesn't stop your car from running. It doesn't affect the gas mileage or anything else. But I said, you know what? What the heck? I'll just replace them both, be done with it. And that's it. So that's what we did. We replaced the other one on Friday. And then uh, Saturday, the 24th, we headed out again to try to make it home. And we did successfully make it home. Now, in the interim, I found out something else. Also vehicle related Um, from driving my dad's old truck. I noticed that the front end didn't feel quite right. And I know my brother had told me he put new tie rod ends on it. Usually when you do that, you got to do a front end alignment. But it felt like there was something more wrong to me than the alignment. And I knew the tires that he had on it were getting pretty close to bald. It was going to need new tires. I knew that going in. So I was fine with that. So when I got paid, I, uh, I called up the local Firestone place and they were able to get me in the same day, which was great. And that was on Thursday. And so I took the truck over to him. I dropped it off and Tina and I went shopping at the local Walmart. They called me while I was there and they said, well, we got the new tires on. We went to do the alignment and discovered that your left wheel bearing is shot. It's got a wicked amount of play to it. It's not going to do us any good to align it unless we replaced the wheel bearing. And of course the wheel bearing was 300 and some dollars and the labor was another $300. So all total with the tires and the alignment, the wheel bearing and the labor cost me 1300 bucks. But when I got the truck back, it had brand new 235 5017s, which is what it's supposed to have. And they're 50,000 mile tread life tires, which is great. They're, they're sexy tires. They're great tires. And The truck drives like a new truck. Again, the front end's nice and tight. The alignment's perfect. I drove it 500 miles back to our house in North Carolina on Saturday with absolutely no problems whatsoever. So I was really happy about that. So we got both vehicles taken care of and we made it back home safely. Now, the last part of my vehicle rant is we got back home at about five o'clock on Saturday afternoon. And I said, well, you know, my Rogue's been sitting here in the driveway for three weeks. Let me go ahead and start it up just to make sure, you know, start it up, let it run for a few minutes, all that good stuff, because it's been just sitting in the driveway for three weeks. It wouldn't start. The battery was dead. I was like, are you kidding me? Why is the battery dead just from three weeks of sitting? I don't know. Maybe that's normal for most vehicles nowadays. I know they have so darn many computers in them, and they have so many electronic items that don't all completely power off when the vehicle is shut off. Um, there's, I know, there's things in car in vehicles today that don't power off unless you totally disconnect the battery. <laughs> so I was a little bit upset by that, but I did have a newer. Jumper box, a booster box that I bought at a local auto parts store when Tina's battery went bad last year in her Rogue. And um, so I pulled that out of her Rogue and I hooked it up to my car, but it didn't have enough charge left in it, not quite to get my car running. So I had to bring it up on the porch, plug it in, let it charge for a while. Then it was able to jumpstart my Rogue. I let it run for a few minutes, and then I ran down into downtown Roxborough because I needed to gas up my car anyways, and when we left, I left it with, you know, barely a quarter of a tank, and I gassed it up, and I went and got milk and some other things at the store, came back, and each time after I jumped it and drove into town, which is about 15 miles, it started no problem, so luckily, or hopefully, I don't have a bad battery. Hopefully, I don't have a dead cell. It just, you know... uh, I don't know, went dead from sitting. Like I said, cars have so many electronics in them nowadays that don't all power off when the car is turned off. So maybe that's what ran the battery that I don't know. But I'm going to keep the booster box in the car fully charged just in case I need it sometime in the near future. All right. So that is it for my vehicle rant for this episode. Let's get into the news stories that I saw this week that caught my eye that I thought were interesting. Okay. first up from Petapixel, large format photos document black communities in the 1980s deep south. Baldwin Lee toured the deep south throughout the 1980s, where he captured black Americans on a four by five large format camera. A new book has put together a selection from the roughly 10,000 photographs Lee captured while visiting largely impoverished areas in states like Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. In 1982, just after Lee had become an art professor at the University of Tennessee, he covered 2,000 miles of the Deep South over the course of 10 days. Upon returning from his trip and developing the photos, Lee realized that his favorite photos and the subject he felt the most passion for were the African-American communities he had interacted with. This realization prompted more trips across the southern United States into the late 1980s. Lee, a first-generation Chinese-American, says he received warm reception from his subjects when he carefully approached them to ask if they would pose for his camera. Quote, for some reason, people would see me positively. I'm not sure if it was my race, gender, physicality, dress, demeanor, or anything else. If in a day I asked 20 people for permission to make photographs, 19 would say yes, he tells the book's author, Jessica Bell Brown. When Lee arrived in a new town, he would seek out the local police station and tell them that he was a tourist with very expensive camera gear interested in taking photographs. Quote, the officers will usually produce a map and red line areas to be avoided. Almost always neighborhoods where there is a concentration of blacks. The red areas are where I go to make photographs, he told Chrysler Museum of Art. Lee's photo hero is Walker Evans, who went about documenting people in a similar manner. Lee studied with Evans, and both photographers produced frontal, sharply detailed, unblinking views of people undergoing hardships. Lee's choice of camera, a tripod-mounted 4x5 camera, meant that he used long exposure times that necessitated subjects standing perfectly still. It ruled out the possibility to make spontaneous images and led Lee to direct the centers to obtain a good shot. Baldwin Lee is published by Huntress Point Press and available to purchase now. And you can find the link in this article in the show notes. And more of Lee's work can be found on his website. Now, I love this story. And I love the style of photography that Lee is doing. It's extremely similar. Now, I'm not exactly the same, but you're familiar with my Forgotten Pieces of Georgia and Pennsylvania series. Now, in my series, my projects, I'm documenting old abandoned buildings. Uh, but it's still a documentary style of photography. And the images that Lee has, just the few that it shows in the Petapixel article, are absolutely stunning. He has some fantastic. Fantastic images, black and white images of his subjects from the Deep South. And I absolutely love his work. And congratulations, Lee, on your book. I have a feeling it's going to sell very, very well. I'll have to get me a copy for sure. Next up, a camera similar to the one that sold for $1.34 million is coming to auction. A 1957 Leica MP Black Paint Edition, the same year and model as the one that sold for $1.34 million about a year ago, is coming to auction next month. The Westlar camera auctions are set to be held on October 8th, and the organization has shared a list of some of the most interesting items, including a 1957 Leica MP Black Paint estimated at $300,000 and an MDA NASA replica worth $80,000. Spotted by Digital Camera World, the Wetzler uh, Camera Auctions has published its catalog of items up for bid and also provided a short preview of selected highlights coming to its auction. The 1957 Leica MP Black Paint and the MDA NASA replica are two of the standout items in the preview due to their supposed value. The Leica MP Black Paint Edition from 1957 is estimated to be sold for anywhere between 250 and 300 thousand dollars. Now, this particular unit was originally delivered as a silver chrome-plated camera, according to the Wetzler Camera Auctions. In the 1960s, as part of a factory repair, it was reworked into a black-finished version on a customer's request. Of note, a camera of similar vintage sold for a staggering $1.34 million back in November of 2021 at the Lights Photographica auction. Back then, Lights Photographica said that not only was it one of the rarest Leica models of all time, only 412 were ever produced, but it was also in fantastic condition. The 1957 MP black paint offered, uh, being offered at the Wetzlar camera auction does not appear to be in as good of condition as the one that sold for $1.34 million. but it is close and being valued at nearly the same range. The Lights camera, uh, Photographica one was set to prior to auction day. It was originally valued at between 300 and 350000 and ended up selling for $1.34 million. If Leica camera values hold up, it stands to reason that this Leica MP will exceed its estimated value as well. While not estimated at nearly as high a value, one of the other most expensive offerings at the Wetzlar auction this year is a Leica MDA NASA replica that is valued for as much as $80,000. The auction house says that it is a superbly executed, fully functional replica of the famous camera used for the NASA Skylab experiment S063. This experiment, executed in 1979, was designed to provide data for several studies. The photography of air, air, Low, air glow, I'm sorry, ozone aurora, and comet uh, Kukak. Although five missions were planned, three went ahead, but the Skylab fell out of orbit and disintegrated upon re entry. A full list of all 256 lots up for sale can be perused at the Wetzlar camera auction catalog, which you can find in this article in today's show notes. So definitely have to see what that MP ends up going for. Will it get quite as high as the last one this past November or will it fall short? We'll have to wait and see a high-res look into the mountain made famous by Lord of the Rings. An astronaut aboard the International Space Station captured this stunning photo directly above Mount Rufio in New Zealand, better known as Mount Doom from the Lord of the Rings movie trilogy. In a truly unique perspective, an astronaut aboard the ISS used a Nikon D5 camera and 1150 millimeter lens to catch the moment the spacecraft was directly above the mountain, looking directly into the active volcano. Two hundred and sixty four miles above the earth, the unnamed but talented photographer timed their shot to perfection to get a great look at the mountain, the tallest mountain on New Zealand's North Island, standing at two thousand one hundred and ninety seven meters or nine thousand one hundred and seventy seven feet with an active strato volcano. The photo was taken in twenty twenty one, but was only published on September 18th. Near the summit lies Crater Lake, known as T-Y-A-M-O in the native Amore, Amore, which is heated up by a hydrothermal system within the volcano. Following a period of dormancy dating back to 2011, volcanic activity was reported in 2022, with water temperatures peaking around 40 degrees Celsius or 104 degrees Fahrenheit. NASA published a second photo of underwater volcano. Another image of a volcano, also in the Pacific region, was published this week by NASA, but this time it was actually ejecting steam. However, this volcano was underwater, close to the home reed seamount in the central Tonga Islands, which is uh, has the highest density of underwater volcanoes in the world, and on September 10th, one of them woke up. After the underwater volcano erupted, a new island was formed, with NASA's Landsat 9 capturing the newly formed land on September 14th. The island is estimated to have grown to over 24,000 square meters, or six acres, and is located southwest of Late Island, northeast of Hunga Hungahapai, <laughs> wow, and northwest of Mona Una uh, islands created by submarine volcanoes are often short-lived though they occasionally persist for years. Home reef has had four record uh, four recorded periods of eruptions including events in 1852 and 57 Small islands temporarily formed after both events and eruptions in 1984 and 2006 produced efural islands with cliffs that were fifty to 70 meters high. Frodo's destination. Lord of the Rings fans may know Mount Revenue better as Mordor's Mount Doom, the place that Frodo and Sam Wise took an arduous journey to get uh, to so they could destroy the One Ring. The jagged rocks and active volcano created the perfect eerie backdrop for Peter Jackson directed Lord of the Rings trilogy, and it is absolutely stunning. And that astronaut did get an amazing top-down view of that active volcano from ISS. So, my hat's off to you. Street photography of London during the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. We rarely find ourselves capturing event-based street photography and push to create stories from the everyday. However, at this point in time, we can't imagine a more important and historically significant day. As London street photographers, this once-in-a-lifetime event was one that we felt a duty to document and capture in our own way to give a sense of what it felt like to be in London amongst the crowds during the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. Born in Mayfair, London, on 21st of April, 1926, the young queen, whilst third in line for the throne, was not expected to become queen, as her uncle, King Edward VII, was young enough to marry and have his own children. Her life, however, changed dramatically when at 10 years old, her uncle abdicated, making her heir presumptive as her father became king. At 25 years old, five years after she had married Philip Montalban, uh, uh her father, King George VI, died and she became Queen Elizabeth II. Her 70-year reign, the longest of any British monarch, encompassed a period overseeing some of the biggest changes in technological development and industrial, economic and social life across the world, but also of the monarchy itself. Fifteen prime ministers served during her reign, and she remains one of the most traveled heads of state. Her death on the 8th of September, 2022, will be a defining moment in history. The state funeral of Elizabeth II was, as you would expect, a solemn affair that was attended by world leaders and thousands of her subjects. The service at Westminster Abbey in London took place on 19th September, 2022, and is predicted to be the most watched television event in history, with over 4.1 billion people across the globe watching it. Although we had intentions of traveling into Westminster to capture the essence of the procession, we decided to begin our journey in Green Park to respectfully soak up the atmosphere at Hyde Park instead. And there's some beautiful images here of the entire procession um, in the streets and capturing, you know, just everyday members of the citizens of the United Kingdom during this funeral for Queen Elizabeth. For the majority of our street photography projects, we turn to our trusty Fuji X100F for its simplicity and uncomplicated form factor. It's an incredibly powerful camera that produces beautiful imagery, It's also incredibly small and works so well when you need to stay inconspicuous. However, for more recent projects, we've opted to use our Sony equipment, such as the A7 III and the A9. These cameras have lightning fast autofocus and in the grand scheme of things are fairly small as well granted they aren't as stealthy but in mega crowded locations where there are lots of other distractions people seem to be more immune to having a camera pointed in their direction which works really well for capturing candid portraits and street scenes for the film we kept our setup really light using the sony a7s3 along with the sony g master 35 50 millimeter and 85 millimeter glass Although these lenses are pretty large, they serve so well for our filming style with manual and autofocus capabilities. We considered using our Sony FX3 as it's slightly smaller and lighter. However, the addition of the eyepiece made capturing moving stills and keeping the camera steady a lot easier. And there are, like I said, some very beautiful images. There's also a video here uh, from the state funeral for Queen Elizabeth II. And my heart goes out to all of the citizens of the United Kingdom in this grieving process, as well as my friends that live in England as well. She was truly a great monarch. Now, from Canon rumors, we haven't forgotten about the Canon EOS R1, and you probably haven't either. Almost immediately after the Canon EOS R3 was announced, people were already asking about the R1, Canon's future flagship camera. We haven't heard much about it in recent months, as Canon rolled out the EOS R10 and the R7 and a couple of RFS lenses. We have been told that the Canon EOS R1 is scheduled for the second half of 2023 for an announcement and that we could see teasers beginning in the spring. The latest information says the Canon's new flagship will be the new resolution king as well as a big focus on 8K video production and tying in with cinema EOS, though it won't get a C variant. With Sony, Nikon and Leica topping out at around 60 megapixels for stills, that would put the Canon north of that if the reports are true. We are also told that the form factor and ergonomics will take a step forward, mixing what we expect from a Canon flagship camera along with some new features. Canon has spent a lot of the development speaking with shooters and especially EOS R3 professionals. So there will be more to come in the future. Now, my two cents on this, I don't doubt for a moment that Canon is going to release the R1. It's expected and pretty much a given at this point. However, I still don't think it's going to be their high megapixel beast. Canon has already hinted numerous times that they're going to release a high megapixel upwards of 90 to 100 megapixel mirrorless replacement for the 5ds and sr so i don't think that the r1 is going to get quite that big a sensor maybe 60 megapixels possibly but i don't think it's going to go much higher than that now that's just my opinion but when it comes to canon stuff i'm usually pretty accurate just about 100 of the time so we'll have to wait and see Firmware, Canon Cinema EOS C70 version 1.0.4.1, now available. Canon has released a fix for the Cinema EOS C70 in regards to the service notice that was posted earlier. And you can find that service notice in this article in the show notes. Firmware version 1.0.4.1 incorporates the following fix. Fixes an issue in which, in rare instances, the camera cannot be normally operated when operating the record button with the camera set to continuous record function. You can download that firmware now and apply it to your EOS C70 to get that fix. And I highly recommend you do so as soon as possible. Now, from Nikon rumors, this Photosy Nikon F to Z mount adapter costs just $16.29. This is the cheapest alternative to the original $250 Nikon FTZ version, and it costs only $16.29. The adapter has no electrical contacts and is compatible with all Nikon Z mirrorless cameras. Infinity focusing is guaranteed. Copper lens mount. Uh, Exposure and focusing have to be adjusted manually. No support for auto aperture, auto focusing or any other auto function. More Nikon F to Z mount lens adapters can be found at the accompanying link in this article in the show notes. Next up, Nikon Japan announces another price increase. Nikon Japan has announced more price increases that will impact mirrorless cameras, Nikkor Z lenses, binoculars, and golf laser rangefinders. The new prices will become active on October 5th of 2022. And this is to be expected. I mean, we're going to keep seeing this for the foreseeable future due to the supply chain shortages. So if you want to get any of this Nikon gear, you're going to want to do it now. And you can find the list at this article in today's show notes. So check it out for yourself. And now from the uh, world of Fuji Rumors, the latest and greatest, not. Not that it is my fault, but I certainly do not help. I mean, I am attracted to the latest and greatest. My gas is in constant frenzy and my wife is in constant worries. This is from Patrick. My techie nerdy side is always looking at the details that make the latest and greatest Fujifilm gear more than the one I already own, better than the one I already own. With one little distinction, my focus on the latest and greatest does not remain contained to my private life, but I share it publicly here on Fuji Rumors. Tens of thousands of fellow X shooters follow me every day in my obsession with the latest and greatest. And sometimes the message here on FR might pass that only what's brand new and shiny is worth to be considered for this blog. So let me refocus. Let me for one time ignore whatever Fujifilm has launched in terms of super new gear and share a roundup that focuses on not so new gear that still brings great joy every day to many of us. So I am sorry, Fujifilm X-H2, X-H2S, XF56, F1.2, RWR, the GF20-35F4, to and even the Fujifilm X-T5 and whatnot, this is not your article. This is not your space. Nope. This space is for all that gear that came before you and made Fujifilm great before you even ever saw the light of day. And you can check out the roundup in this article in today's show notes. Important note added by Fujifilm regarding XF lenses supporting 40 megapixel sensor on the X-H2 and the Fujifilm X-T5. When Fujifilm launched the 40 megapixel X-H2, they also published a list of lenses that get the maximum benefit from the new high resolution sensor. This led quite some folks also here on Fuji Rumors to believe that the lenses are that not on the list will not profit at all from the increased resolution. Some even said that because of this, they won't upgrade to the 40 megapixel Fujifilm X-H2 and also the upcoming 40 megapixel Fujifilm X-T5. I did try to explain that you have to see in our other terms, the new sensor will finally let all FX lenses express at their best in terms of resolution. It's just those not on the list won't go quite up all the way to 40 megapixels. Finally, Fujifilm understood that message and they put out was potentially confusing and now added a note on their official Fujifilm X-H2 page. Quote, the list specifies our selection of lenses that have high resolution performance from edge to edge at maximum aperture, allowing you to fully experience all that the 40 megapixel sensor has to offer. Lenses not listed will also allow you to experience the improved resolution performance of the 40 megapixel sensor. So, if you want 40 megapixel resolution from edge to edge at the maximum aperture, then only the lenses on the list will deliver. But Fujifilm now clearly says that lenses not listed will also deliver improved resolution performance when used with the 40 megapixel sensor. Hence, if you want more resolution, buying a Fujifilm X-H2 or the X-T5 will give you that, and also by using lenses that are not on the list. And from now, I or how I read it, some might even resolve all the 40 megapixels when stopped down, at least in the center of the frame would be nice if Fujifilm would even be more specific on that particular note and that is it for Fujifilm room or Fuji rumors for this week next up new in stock DZO film octopus adapter for the EF mount lens to E-mount camera DZO Films' new autofocus adapter is in stock for the first time via b Photo, and you can find it in a link in the show notes. In stock for $269, this adapter will allow you to have autofocus and adapt EF lenses to E-mount cameras. So you'd be able to use those Canon lenses on your Sony E-mount camera bodies. So there you go. And last for today's episode, Yongnu will soon announce its first 12 to 35 e mount zoom lens. Camera Beta shared this image of the lens design of the new Yongnu 12 to 35 e mount autofocus lens. Now, here are some of the specs internal zoom, internal focus, close focusing distance is 0.25 meters, SCU super close up is 11 centimeters. Now, that's all we have for the time being. So we'll have to wait and see if any of this is actually true. Remember, I've warned you before. Sony Alpha Rumors does not have the greatest track record when it comes to rumor accuracy. So you have been warned. All right. That's going to wrap up this episode. to join that group but you do have to answer two security questions to join that group you can find my work at liamphotography.net and follow me on instagram facebook and twitter at liamphotoatl if you like abandoned buildings and history you can find my projects at forgottenpiecesofgeorgia.com and forgottenpiecesofpennsylvania.com all right, everybody. That is a wrap for episode 275 of the Liam Photography Podcast. Back from the three-week break, and I apologize to my listeners for being gone for an extra week. Was not intentional, and I do apologize for the bit of the rant at the beginning of the episode for about 20 minutes uh, ranting about vehicle problems during the trip. But hey, you get what you get on this show. Okay, that's just the way it is. You get photography. You get videography stuff, you get interviews from time to time, and sometimes you get rants. Hey, it works for Jared Poland on his show. So why not here? Uh, if you don't listen to it, stop by and check out Raw Talk, the new revamped version of Raw Talk with Jared and Steven from Fronos Photo. It is a good show. My wife and I love listening to their episodes every week. I've been trying to get Jared to come on here because I would love to talk to him on my show. But so far, he's been thumbing his nose at me. So if you listen to this show and you listen to his show, Do me a favor and harass him a bit. See if you can get him to come on here for me. In the meantime, please don't forget to stop by on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a rating and review on the show. Leave a comment you can even reference the show you listen to that you're leaving the comment about if you'd like. Please be uh, sure to stop by the Liam Photography YouTube channel. Subscribe to the channel. Watch the videos. Like them. Comment on them. Share them out on social media and elsewhere. And I will see you all again on Thursday.